welcome to Westside Unscripted. This is the podcast where the pastors loosen their ties, uh, throw away their notes, and we talk about all things theology and culture. I am Josh Bartels, the assistant to the pastors here at Westside, and I am joined by our preaching pastor, Peter Montoro, and he is here today to answer questions about theology and culture, and we're going to throw a biblical interpretation one at him uh, this week. But before we do, we're going to uh, hear sometimes in his uh, sermon prep, a lot of things get left on the, uh, I don't know what you call your cutting room floor, cutting yeah, table, yeah. something like that. Right. Yeah. It gets left behind. And so uh, in, in this, today, he's going to give us something that uh, was left on the table this last week. So you were preaching from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, yes. blessed are the mourners. And, yes. And there's yeah. something about, you know, so I've mentioned a few times about how the Beatitudes have a lot of poetic patterns. And there was one that I wanted to talk about. I've wanted to talk about it a couple of weeks, and I keep dropping it because... I keep running out of space and there's too many other more relevant things that need to be said, but it's really quite interesting. Um, and so, as I, as I did mention, the, there's sort of three stanzas to the Beatitude um, poem, and uh, each of them have exactly 36 words, so I've mentioned that. But the first of them, you have blessed are the poor in spirit, um, blessed are they who mourn, uh, blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst uh, after righteousness. Um, and so those first four, they all start with the Greek letter uh, pi, as we say it um, in uh, in English, refer to it in mathematical pronunciation, I would pronounce it P. Um, but it's uh, makarii, so that's the word for blessedness, makarii e patoki to nevmati. So that's p, p. So it's the poor in spirit there. And then you have makarii e pentontes, which are the ones who mourn. And then you have makarii e prais, um, which is that p sound again, um, and that are those are those who are meek. And then you have pinontes, are those who hunger. So you have patoki, Pentotes, prais, pinontes. And so each of the first four all start, are alliterated with the same uh, Greek letter. And so it's just part of the arrangement and the artistry of it um, that there's all these little patterns. There's other patterns as well, but just the alliteration. When you have like four of those in a row and then the next four are all different letters, it's pretty clear that in that first stanza that that has um, an intentional sort of arrangement. And it's also interesting that the first four are all things, you know, so you have those who are poor, you have those who are mourning, you have those who are meek, and you have those who are hungry, which are all things that in and of themselves are negative conditions. So, and, and this is this is one of those things in the first stanza that you've got um, this element where it's conditions that in and of themselves are negative but which lead to an attitude that we ought to exemplify even when we're not in those conditions. So that is something I have talked about. Um, but those are tied together. That first set of four is set apart by this uh, artistic pattern of alliteration um, that helps us to see, you know, here's this first group and then it moves to a second group um, that deals uh, more with things that are, you know, more positives across the board. They may be hard, you know, so to be merciful is hard, but there's nothing, you know, inherently negative about being merciful, even though it may lead to difficult situations. But there's a difference between being merciful, you know, which is just something to advocate across the board and say, you know, if you are in a meek condition, you know, where the wicked are on top and you're on the bottom, um, you know, that's what we'll be talking about, Lord willing, this next Sunday, then that's not good, 
even though having a meek attitude that is exemplified by someone in a meek condition is good. Um, but the circumstances, it, it still is connected to that, that negative experience um, and that's set apart by this sort of pattern. Yeah, and so I think that's uh, an example of how when we say we want to take the Bible literally, it doesn't just mean, or maybe doesn't even mean, that we just take it exactly as we understand it immediately, but rather we use it as the authors were intending. And part of their intention is the poetic artistry that they mm -hmm. are using to communicate the whole idea. Yes. And so picking up on that is important, not only just as a poetic uh curiosity, but it actually communicates something too. Yeah, and some of the patterns in the text. And that's one of the things with studying biblical languages that's really, that's maybe the most useful, is there may be patterns that appear to us in the English text that are not present in the Greek or vice versa. Um, and so both checking things that are like, I wonder if, is this the same word, you know, whatever, like some of those things, being able to see what connections are there and what connections are not there. So we can go beyond, you know, the you know, the hermeneutic of whatever has struck us to actually discerning what are the patterns that are in the text. Yeah. So one of those, uh, that skill might be used in our next, in our question here this week. So <laughs> we're going to go to first Corinthians chapter uh, 14, and I'm going to read a couple of verses real quick to kind of set up the question that we have. So 14, this is verse number 22 and 23. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. If, therefore, the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? Actually, I'm going to read 24 too. But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, and he is judged of all. So uh, the question centers around uh, the, these, these uh, verses of the text. And it is, uh, why does 1 Corinthians 14, 22 there uh, calls tongues a sign for unbelievers and then seemingly contradict that statement by saying that tongues do not profit unbelievers because when they come into the congregation, they assume that you are mad when they hear you speaking in tongues. And then it says, vice versa, that prophecy is a gift uh, not for the unbelievers, but for those who believe. But yet it is prophecy that convinces the unbelievers when they come into the gathered congregation. So what are we to make of that apparent contradiction there? Yeah, so it's definitely, so full disclosure, this is one that uh, when Josh mentioned it was the topic, I spent about five minutes, I do not have a script, it's still unscripted, <laughs> um, but I did spend about five minutes looking looking up a few references. Uh, and so uh, this is certainly a challenging question. It's a very tricky passage of scripture. So I will say that any answer I give is going to be tentative, uh, pending a more detailed investigation of uh, 1 Corinthians as a whole. Uh, but there's a few things I think we can say from the beginning. I think one of the important things is to back up one verse. So he says, In the law it is written with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. And so where does it say that in the Old Testament? Well, the closest uh, reference to what Paul is saying there is in Isaiah chapter 28, um, and verse 11, uh, and, and reading the, the overall context there, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, uh, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. 
to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet uh, they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Uh, and then also Deuteronomy uh, 28, uh, let's see what's verse, 28, 49, um, the Lord shall bring a nation against thee from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. And so what's going on in the book of Isaiah, in the uh, broader context of Isaiah, is that the people are saying, so Isaiah keeps giving them these warnings over and over again. He's telling them the same thing. And they're like, do you think we're little kids? Why do you keep repeating all of this stuff? And he says, well, you wouldn't listen to me. So I'm going to bring a, a nation upon you whose nation you're not going to understand. So they're saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, you're babbling. Are you teaching us the ABCs? You're, this is you're being offensive, you know, you're being offensive in repeating the same stuff over and over again to us. Um, and so he says, you know, you're going to hear people whose language you're really not going to understand. And it's going to hear like actual babbling. And it's going to, of course, be the Babylonian invasion um, that is going to come against the people of God, which is what was prophesied in Deuteronomy, um, which is why Paul uh, likely refers to the law, even though his quotation is closer to Isaiah, something frequently all the New Testament writers do is merge multiple quotations together. Um, and so you have that taking place here as well. And so with that Old Testament context, then the tongues of the Babylonians were a judgment on the hard-heartedness of the children of Israel. So it wasn't a positive sign of the presence of the Spirit of God. It was a sign of their alienation from God. Um, and so if you take it, if you take it in that way, which is clearly the context in Isaiah, then the signs that, you know, the tongues that weren't understood, so tongues not being understood is a sign of judgment. And so therefore, it is a sign for unbelievers, but it's not the sort of sign that's going to lead them to belief. It's the sort of sign that is going to highlight their disconnect from the people of God. Um, and so in that sense, uh, that when the unbelievers come in and they hear signs, it's not going to draw them closer to God. It's going to be a sign to remind them that they're far away from God. Um, and so in that case, even though it is a sign, it's not a positive one, uh, and it... Um, it's going to be more beneficial to them to hear the good news in, you know, the proclamation of the word that those who were far off can be brought nigh uh, by the blood of Christ. Um, and so they hear something they can understand and they can believe. This does seem to fit with what Paul talks about. So really the, the big, and this is something I've puzzled over, is the big challenge is the sort of... Um, language that needs to be interpreted that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, or a language that's not understood. Um, that's clearly the context in Isaiah and in Deuteronomy. Um, that seems to sit in some tension with what shows up in Acts 2, where it's a means of evangelism. And here is a means of, of um, you know, they're speaking in languages that unbelievers don't understand. Uh, and so, and, and when Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians, and that's really a lot of the debate about tongues is it's pretty clear by this point. Now, some of the initial advocates of the charismatic movement, you know, said, well, we can now go be missionaries to far places of the world, but it didn't really work out very well because uh, it's pretty clear that the glossalia of speaking in, you know, this spirit language or whatever it is people want to call it, that that, you know, isn't a recognizable language, or at least if it is, it's not an aid in evangelism in the way that it was once claimed and nobody really claims that it is. 
But at the same time, it seems to me at least difficult that whatever Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 is the same thing that's taking place in Acts 2, because if it was, you would think it would be leading to greater understanding that they're speaking in tongues and everyone's understanding them. But he says they need an interpreter, which means everyone's not understanding them, where in fact, no one is understanding them. And that's his point. Um, so are those even, is it even the same phenomenon in, and this is, this is some of the questions that I've, you know, I've thought about, is it even the same phenomenon in 1 Corinthians 14 as you've got in Acts? Because whatever's going on in 1 Corinthians 14 isn't edifying without an interpreter. Um, so that's, yeah. Sorry. And do you, do you think that, uh, this is just something that came to mind. Do you think that the interpretation here, the gift of interpreting is a theoretical gift? that he's using as a rhetorical thing to say that the, well, I don't do think, think that yeah, I don't actually... think it's theoretical because when he gives directions for limiting tongues in some appropriate sense, then he says, let someone interpret. So there's, there's someone who can interpret there's someone with that gift to be able to interpret what is being said by that person. And so that's that how it's supposed to be, right. How it's supposed to be right. that even when they are, you know, he doesn't tell them don't speak in tongues, but if they're going to speak in tongues, they need to do it in a way that leads to leads to edification. Um, I think to me, the, mo the the broader point that I found helpful in sort of assessing uh, spiritual gifts and some of the debate about that is some people want to have a really hard answer that absolutely excludes anything they're not comfortable with. And yet I don't really see that. So there's the passage where he talks about tongues, they shall cease. And, and yet he also talks about knowledge passing away. So it's not like you know, so it seems to me a sort of forced reading of that to, you know, just like it's a forced reading to see, you know, tongues as a sign of the new birth or something like that, when clearly Paul is not all that up on them speaking in tongues. Um, and so that violates a lot of scripture. But the other one sort of trying to completely exclude anything that we're not completely comfortable with seems to really read something out of the text that isn't there, um, because we wouldn't want to say, you know, there's no knowledge now, it's going to vanish away as well or something. And there's some arguments based on Greek grammar that I don't there's, there's some sort of convoluted arguments to try to exclude any possibility of there being anything, you know, any validity to anything we're not comfortable with. And I think that can uh, be forceful, uh, th that can, um, you know, force the text as well. But it's very clear that the authority is given to the text of Scripture. And whatever manifestations of the Spirit that there may be, they're going to do two things. They're going to be in accordance with the Scripture and be able to be tested by the Scripture. You know, so we're to test the spirits. So they're testable and they are not just testable, but tested. And the spirit is, you know, as Jesus described in John is going to point towards Jesus. So someone who is binding, you know, judging everything that is said by the scripture and everything that is said is pointing towards Jesus. Even if I'm not quite comfortable with, you know, what sort of spiritual manifestations they have, that's to me less of a, you know, more of a second order issue. Whereas just the testing things by scripture and pointing to Jesus and not to sort of sensationalism rules out the vast majority of, you know, Benny Hinn fails both tests, yeah. um, you know, as to the, you know, the, the, the sort of excesses that we'd want to condemn. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And it would seem that uh, a, a world where we understood everything perfectly and had all of the phenomenon we experience as being as being wrapped up and understood by some kind of, I guess, not scientific study, but 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 it, but if basically we're able to look and say no, all of these phenomena, speaking in tongues or whatever, are uh, 
are, are just not possible. We, we, we should expect the world to be a little bigger and more harder, yeah, exactly. harder to understand than we imagine, but that it can be still governed by what we do have clear revelation yes. about. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just very hesitant to tell the spirit what he can't do. Yeah. Right. Right. We should, because we should expect the spirit to be a little bit misunderstand or, or uh, incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of, you know, and so one of the things, so, you know, I'm not by any means going in, out and looking for signs and wonders, but one of the things we see when the gospel goes to a new place, a lot of things like you see in the book of Acts start showing up. And I think that's part of the, that, you know, if the message has been proven in our context, it doesn't need to be sort of demonstrated by signs and wonders, but like when, um, you know, John Patton goes to cannibals who had never heard the gospel. There's some pretty gnarly stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just that. It's like time after time after time in places where there's no gospel and the gospel goes and it's like showdown with the, you know, witch doctors. Crazy stuff happens pretty consistently. Um, and yet our goal should never be to seek crazy stuff for the sake of crazy stuff. It's opening a doorway for the gospel. And so if, if the gospel is the main yeah. thing, then... And often in those situations... When uh, I, I was in Jordan and got to talk to some people who had been in Iraq and Iran, far away from gospel preaching people, uh, th- there were some pretty wild stories that we heard there. But almost all of them point people to other people who can then bring the gospel to them. It's almost always pointing them in, di- in a direction that eventually the scripture ends up getting to them. And that's the thing that is emphasized in their fantastic sign that they saw. Yeah, and that, that that I would say would be a sign. It's it is it is something that is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing pointing to the scriptures, and so you know it's kind of like looking. You know when you when you have the lights on, you don't need the flashlight. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, the people who we talked to, uh, they were not looking for those same signs again. Right. Like they were they were they had found the thing that the sign had pointed to, and there was no need to be looking for you know, uh, an angel touching someone on the shoulder again, because God has already done that. And we now know about Jesus. Right. And that, to me, that's a sign of something that's very healthy. And I, I get a little leery of people who want to exclude, you know, whose primary concern is to limit what God can do. And that just like, you know, or so, and it just goes back to something we've talked about on the podcast. I talked about in sermons where we're so determined to nail everything down and to, you know, like we have to, we have to prove that not only, you know, not only answer sort of the big meta questions of the charismatic movement and say, okay, you know, seeking signs and wonders is bad. We should point to Jesus, you, you know, sort of the big category mm-hmm. things, but we've got to prove that absolutely every manifestation that is claimed to be of the spirit is actually of the devil. I, I just can't follow that. You know, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I'm not like trying to speak in tongues or I'm not like really, it's never been something that I've seen but I'm less, I'm more concerned to set up healthy boundaries and big picture than to sort of, you know, judge. <laughs> right. Prepare us so that when we see some kind of phenomena that we don't understand, we're able right. to decide what should we do with this. We have the, the, the rubric of understanding to look at it and begin to evaluate it from scripture. Right. And in fact, actually, you know, one of the things that's funny to me is some of those who have, just in my personal experience, who have been the most vehement against anyone who has any connection to, you know, sort of a continuationist position that the signed gifts are in some some sense still ongoing, you know, would feel total freedom to talk about, you know, how God led them and God told me this and God told me that. 
and they wouldn't evaluate, you know, they, they wouldn't let anyone challenge them based on scripture. So even though they were, you know, nailing, you know, nailing the coffin on all their theological enemies, their actual practice was in some cases <laughs> more problematic. And for the same reason, um, <laughs> Yeah, I, Have I, you? I've personally uh, been there before, <laughs> following my own signs and wonders that I had created or tried to read into things. Oh, my word. And, oh, it's one yeah. missionary came to our church, and they knew that they were called to go to Spain because they've been driving down the road, and they saw, you know, a truck with Spanish food products on it or something. Um, and, you know, it said Spain on the truck, and they knew that that was, you know, God's sign. And... Um, I have no idea why, <laughs> but somehow our church took them on for support. Um, it wasn't my decision. I was a child at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, lo and behold, they didn't last in the field very long. Um, you know, they yeah. saw a truck yeah. with America on it, I think. And my, my own example of that was when I was a 13-year-old boy, I read a book about a man who had been a part of the KGB and he defected and ended up coming to the States and he got saved and all this stuff. And the book actually ended up turning out to be mostly a farce. But I... Uh, believe that after reading that I had this big emotional moment and I thought this is where I'm supposed to go as a missionary and that governed the rest of you know my decision of going to college things like that uh but it all ended up turning out okay number one because most of the things I was doing were things that were good to do on them in and of themselves and then eventually God through college brought me around to see that that's not how we go about understanding the will of God and I came to believe that if God wants me to go to Russia, he'll find a church to send me. And then, you know, God sent me to a church and there was a church that was willing for a while to send me. And then when they weren't willing to send me, that was an obvious sign that that wasn't what God had at the moment. And so it just, be, you know, you know, that I guess demonstrates some of that. Yeah, kind of no, growth. I think I think yeah. what you said, you know, the, the one line you said that you were doing the things you should have been doing anyways. I think that's the the number, you know, God gives leads us primarily through wisdom and primarily through doing the next right thing. And so like, that's something I think about in my own life. Like, what's the next thing I should be doing? And what's the thing I can be doing that, you know, if I don't have to foreclose, like, like it doesn't, it's not dependent on me knowing the future. You know, like what, what can I do that's not going to close doors down? You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's one of the things that even, um, you know, how I ended up in a, you know, I would never recommend to anyone to, you know, be a new, pre, you know, take on a new preaching pastor responsibility and end up in a, you know, PhD program at the same time. But I'm confident this is where I'm supposed to be just, you know, sort of following in the footsteps. I was, you know, doing this academic track and sort of not, it just was the next right thing to do. And uh, then it became clear that the next right thing to do was to take on the preaching pastor role as well. Um, which is two years this Sunday, and it's been crazy. But it's been a crazy that it's been clear to me, at least, that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I can't. I don't know what the future holds, and I don't have to. But I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Right. And interestingly enough, often the desire to, uh, at least in my own life, the desire to have God speak to me about what I'm supposed to do and lead me in some kind of supernatural way, uh, is really my attempt to write my own story where the way to let God actually write your story is to just do what's right and what's right in front of you. What does God want you to do today? What does obedience look like right now? What would be a wise course of action? And then as you do that over the course of your life, you will have a, a story that was written by God and not by you. That very desire that you wanted from the beginning that might drive you to think I'm going to find some supernatural 
guidance. You know, God guides in the little ways of obedience and faith. Paul Washer says you need to trust God's ability to lead more than your ability to follow. And yeah, that's, that's, that's always been really helpful to me. And like even, you know, even in marrying, you know, the wife that I married, like I was really, I mean, Josh remembers these days at least a little bit. I was really determined to find a wife in Bible college. Like I was, I was pretty maximally set on this. Um, and I put a lot of effort into trying to, but it was basically like, I'm going to guide, you know, my principle was I'm not going to do anything, you know, that I would regret doing if I'm wrong. And as it turned out, you know, I put a lot of effort forth and it never went anywhere. It wasn't like I had a bunch of girlfriends. It was like I had girls I was interested in that weren't interested in me. Um, but there was effort being put forth to try to change that. And it just wasn't working. Um, but it was those things I learned in that intense frustration and disappointment and um, chagrin and all of the negative emotions um, that I learned what I needed to learn. And when yeah. the, you know, the Lord brought Ashley along, it just you know, if he had brought her along, you know, before all of those experiences, I wouldn't have been ready. Yeah. But he prepared, even in what seemed at the time, like, why did I waste all this emotional energy? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it was really uh, what was needed. Yeah. God was using that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. Well, this has been another episode of West Side Unscripted, and we are very grateful that all of you have been here to listen, uh, listen in today. We are going to be on hiatus, a little bit of a break for Christmas holiday uh, the next couple of weeks, but we will be back with you in January with regular episodes. Uh, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, if you have questions uh, that you would like to have Pastor Peter uh, tackle, then you can send those to my email, josh at bibledirectionforlife.com. Or of course, you can always uh, catch me at church with those questions. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time for more talk about theology and culture on Westside Unscripted. Unscripted.